I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of the Washington Post. And I'm Elizabeth Pinchantilli. I write for the New York Times and the New Yorker. Welcome to episode 34 of Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America. We're hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. And today, we're going to be joined by a guest, but first we should know that Harry Kinshaw, the third leg of the Here on the Isle tool, is away today. So Elizabeth and I are going to take over the hosting duties solely for our guest, theater artist of, I have to say, high distinction, David Cromer, director and sometime actor, whose long list of credits includes most famously probably a revival of Fortnweiler's Our Town, and when it was in New York, he played the stage manager in that production. It opened about 10 years ago, mm -hmm. right. ran for like a year and a half, and made it the longest run of uh, Our Town we've ever had. I, I think so. And you know, if you saw the show, hashtag bacon. <laughs> <laughs> <You'll>, <laughs> that's all I need to say. Yeah. More recently, David won a Best Director Tony for the Broadway transfer of The Band's Visit and appeared as an actor this past season in the first Broadway production of Ken Lonergan's The Waverly Gallery, a terrific revival of the play with uh, a great cast, Lucas Hedges, Michael Cera, Joan Allen, and Elaine May, who won a Tony uh, this year for Best Performance by a Leading Actress. Terrific ensemble, but Elena was fantastic. So after chatting with David, uh, the two of us are going to talk as usual, your faithful listener, about stuff we've seen <laughs> lately that we liked or maybe uh, didn't like. Indeed. Okay, well, let's get started with David. Uh, David, welcome to what I believe, actually, I just heard from you yourself that this is your first podcast. It's my first podcast. Wow. Yes. We're going to be gentle. Okay. You're going to be gentle. Yeah, that's right. It's going to be penetrating <laughs> and malicious. No. You know the drill. We are pulling back the skin. Yes. The seamy underside. The seamy underside. underside. To show the rotten meat underneath. <laughs> that's all we were, you know, we were urged to do you, that. It's all, you're meant to be a nice guy, about. but I think tonight, <laughs> yeah. today we'll put an end to that. Podcasts are all about. So, so can we just start, David? Um, you know, David, you direct, you act, you did a marvelous job in uh, the Wave of the Gallery. Thank you. I had, never, I had never seen you direct, uh, act before, and I thought it was revelatory. I thought that ensemble, yeah, you meshed beautifully with. Recently at the Tonys, uh, Elaine May, your castmate, won for Best Actress in a Play. Uh, what were you rooting? I assume you were rooting for that, and it felt just sort of like inevitable to me. I guess it did. I, it did feel that way. It did feel that way. I can't imagine. I mean, you know. This is the thing one says, but it, you know, the rating performances or like comparing performances is always it's a dicey thing. We just accept the premise of it and the premise of it. But she did, she did this amazing thing. She came uh, uh, not having acted in many many years. Um, um, I I think it is possible that she's not played a part like this. No, I think you're right. Um, in a very long time, you know, she would talk a lot about. Um, Compass players and the players' workshop. You know, when they, when they were in the 1950s at the University of Chicago, her and incredible, and all those people were what eventually became Second City. They were, they were Paul Sills and all these people and Alan Arkin, and, and they would do, you know, an evening of Strindberg one act, and they would do Chekhov one act, and they would do, you know, and they would they would do Brecht, and you know what I mean. And they, so they would do these. They would like they were doing like storefront theater in the 1950s in, in, in Hyde Park at the University of Chicago. And, you know, and then obviously all, all this other, these, you know, multi-layered career 
I think she primarily considers herself a writer, right. but obviously she's this dazzling performer, and she kind of went like, yeah, what the hell, I'll do it. And, I, you know, it was, we were we were just happy to be up there with her, you know? Yeah. She was very cool. I mean, she was, very, she was a very cool person. She was never, she never scored on anyone. She was never like, she was never like tough or aggressive or unpleasant or mm-hmm. anything like that. Mm-hmm. She was very. She had the the sort of the the class to be of of, of genius. <laughs> she the the right. relaxation that is genius. Yeah. And she was, uh, you know, worked really hard, challenged herself constantly. Yeah. Um, and made it seem seamless. It made it seem like that progression into the loss of self uh, felt very uh, incrementally. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the th- it's funny because like I didn't notice it at one point we were doing the show and I, I was just so used to Gladys that I didn't realize how Elaine had completely reshaped her voice in that role. Wow. Uh, she <clears throat> stood differently. She reshaped her voice. She did all of, of this other work, and I realized you, if you look back and you just go on YouTube and you watch, you know, the the, the mother sketch or the funeral home sketch, you know, and you watch these her and Mike Nichols in black and white doing these things. She was always transformative. It was always this subtle change mm. in rhythm and tone, like she crafts these things. Interesting. And she just, you know, and it did, didn't seem like she was doing it. She well, I mean, it didn't right. she she had changed her voice or her her, her manners or anything, and she did in her logic, and obviously she's incredibly fast. Mm. Um, uh, I, I'm gushy about it. I mean, I, yeah, I we were so. really we were really yeah, it was it was everything you wanted it to be. Just just stop talking about Ellen May, although we could do an entire podcast <laughs> yeah. about Ellen May. Um, is it hard for you to disconnect your director's brain when you're an actor? Are you able to kind of just not think, oh, maybe I would have done it that way? Mm. It, it must be a temptation. I, I think that either everyone always has that, or I, since I always did, I don't know the difference. Uh, I always did. I was an actor, and, and I think I probably had opinions about what, how everyone else should do their job. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's possible. It's possible I shared those opinions. Um, uh, uh, yeah, so so I, I think I always have, by accepting that it's there, you know, that it's by understanding that that's what I was doing, that I, that I was going to automatically uh, edit or question or, or, or rethink anything anyone was doing anyway, it didn't matter. I just, you didn't bring it into rehearsal. I had undying faith in Lila Nagelbauer, mm-hmm. who is a, a, a legitimately brilliant director. And um, and so, you know, that's the thing I'm saying, oh, everyone's a genius and everyone's <laughs> wonderful. And we were like, it's a good group. It was a really good group. Right. Um, I, so it was not, it was, I was aware of it and then you just didn't do anything about it. I can be absolutely dead certain that something has to something else you can be absolutely dead certain I will whisper in Lila's ear or mention it to someone I would do that not undermining but sort of do that and mm-hmm. then easily 50% of the time 60% of the time you go oh well, wait I'm wrong or they're doing mm-hmm. something else oh that's what we're doing that's what we're doing because like I can be sure I'm right and then I'm gonna generally turn out to be wrong mm-hmm. <laughs> right. yeah. uh, uh, so it, it just I mean I'm just sort of I'm used to it. I, 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 I do always do that, but... Um, you played Lame's son-in-law, obviously, yeah. in, in the piece. I'm wondering also, the, conversely, are you conscious of other actors when you're acting that they have, you come in with, you know, major director status? Do you find yourself having to insinuate yourself more subtly into the, into the ensemble because you don't want them thinking 
you're thinking about directing this yourself in your head? Oh, uh, I don't think so. I, I did not, I, this will sound like false uh, modesty, but I was um, comfortably in over my head with that, <laughs> that, with that group of actors. Right. I was, I was, you know, um, and, and uh, so it was really thrilling to be with Elaine, and she is the kind of actor you want her to be, which is that she was always engaged with you. She was never, ever untruthful, and she never, ever disengaged from you. She never, and anything you did, she re responded to it. There was never, oh, I need you to do this for me oh, right. for this moment. You just, so there was that, Joan Allen is, you know, it's a master class. Uh, Lucas and Michael were brilliant. <laughs> I'm sorry, they're all no. It's okay. You're allowed to do that. It was a it was a really good group, and it was a fun show. I did not feel any uh, deference on that. I think I was um, worried about getting my words out. Mm -hmm. It's gotten harder for me to get the words out. So mm -hmm. I had less than everyone. Uh, maybe not less than. What do you mean? It's harder to get the words out. It's hard to get them into my head. After really? forty, it's harder to get them into your head. And hmm. I have no idea how Elaine did it at eighty-six. But yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was worried. I was the weak link. So, so no, I didn't sense any uh, difference to me as an actor. Um, I like acting very much, and I have, I have some, some skill at it that I that I recognize and I, I own. But I did not spend all the years of my life honing it. It was always secondary. I mean, I picked, I picked directing twenty-five years ago, whenever it was. And so acting became, so I'm an enlightened amateur. Uh, uh, <laughs> but what uh, a great thing to get to do. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The joke was stealing, stealing work from real actors. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> but they, they, look, they hired me. You know, if I was going to be terrible, I was going to be lying. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you talked about, like, deciding to focus on, on directing. Can you, I'm really curious as to how, what kind of training and how you, you got into it. Can you tell us a little bit? We go way back. Like, were were the there 40s. any uh, the 40s was there anything like influential in terms of your thinking about how you became a director? I, looking back, right now, it seems like uh, it was a, something I had a predisposition to, and I'm not saying predisposition to be good at, it, but predisposition to say, I would like to assemble a group of people. I'd like to tell them. I'd like to give them some guidelines about what we're going to try to do. And I'm like to shepherd this project until they start performing it. Um, that was in all the games we played. My 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 my, my brother and my uh, the, the, the Joni Afton from across the alley and Mark Carlson from next door for little playmates and my brother Michael and I. Um, we we just played character games. We played, you know. Tom Sawyer, because that was a there was a big movie of Tom Sawyer out when I was a kid. We loved that, so we would act that out. I was always pushing scenarios on people, and I mm. played with dolls. When I, was, I was so drawn to dolls, I loved dolls when I was a kid. Like Joni Afton had dolls, so I like played with her dolls. And I thought this was some sort of strange masculinity thing that was a problem or something. It just was. I was just fascinated by the idea. Like, oh, they look just like people, and we're we're putting them in situations. It's just a Julie Taymor complex. Yeah, it was a Julie <laughs> Taymor complex. So I I. Thought I wanted to be an actor because um, I think most people, when they are first exposed to the theater, that's the only people they see. It's the most visible, yeah. It's the most visible right. thing. So you think you want to be an actor and you want everyone to look at you and listen to you. And um, uh, But looking back, I think I was always most interested in doing this job. Um, how did I, how did it change? I, I took a class in college. We had to take it was required. And I did a scene from Waiting for Lefty, 
and called um, The Young Happiness Girl. Mm-hmm. It's about, yeah, it's a beautiful scene. It's in, um, it's in Florida, and they, they can't get married because they can't afford it. They can't, they're, they're in love with each other, and they can't afford it. Yeah. And I seen that, that, that um, I thought was special and beautiful and, and, and worked really hard on it. I had two best actors in the department and we worked on it all semester. It's a three-minute scene. And we performed it. And all directing one scene, it was just this stupid required class. Mm-hmm. That you, your notes were always like, that was good. The actor should face out more. I got like savage. I got like like the wow. chair of the department and like the, the directing chair. They all like went after wow. me. It was really, it was funny, and like all of the that things can be that devastating. I mean, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was surprising, and I, uh, I was easily, um, I was easily knocked down. It's, it's yeah. weird because I was very easily knocked down, so I went away from it for several years. I, I took acting in college and with a really difficult uh, director teacher, and he cut us to ribbons. Mm-hmm. It, it swore me off acting. I mean, it made me say, "Thank God, I can't do this." <laughs> I mean, which is probably a really good thing. But anyway, well, but we're going to know. We're never gonna know. That's true. Well, I yeah. auditioned for your role in Waverly Gallery, and they yeah, just yeah, they, yeah. they threw me out of the room. Um, uh, but uh, what was it that made you overcome that and um, want to continue doing it? I read a play by Errol Pinter that I loved. It was called Family Voices, hmm. and it's a radio play, and it's from um, a book called Other Plays, or kind of Alaska. And there's a three one acts out of kind of Alaska, family voices, and something else. I can't remember what the umbrella piece is called. And I read it over and over again, and I realized I didn't want to act in it, so I couldn't figure out what it was I wanted. And I went to the chair of my uh, theater department, Michelle Patinkin, who actually came up with Elaine May and, and Second City and, mm. and all the University of Chicago. Wow. Um, and he, uh, I said, I'm interested, interested in this. I think maybe I must want to direct it. How do I start going about that? And he just me to audit the directing program. So I just snuck into school. I snuck back into my college after I didn't go there anymore and went to school. He, he let me come to class for like two years and just direct plays hmm. like I had grad school. Mm-hmm. And I was just, you know, it was directing. Class was Tuesday, Thursdays from, you know, 11 to 1. And you just went to his office. There were six other people. Anna Shapiro was in that class. Wow. Um, wow. And um, he just let me study theater. So I had like two years of grad school. Three. It's, yeah. wow. it's interesting to me, like for instance, in the difference between film and theater directors, because film directors, like you feel that they have this reservoir of stuff that they can watch. Right. Especially, mm. I mean, obviously not in the thirties really or forties, yeah. but like if you're Tarantino, yeah. it's a kind of textbook example of a film director learned by watching other films. It's a lot harder with theater because you don't have access to. Oh, you can't see. I don't know Bergman. Plays, you know, theater plays. Like, I'm just interested in how you start defining your your theatrical vocabulary. Really good question. I, I'm scared. I don't have a good enough answer to that. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm. Is it mostly intuitive? I think so. I definitely you were. We were not able to study them in the way that film could. But I would right. see something. You know, when I was little, something was on television. It was on television once, right. and then they rerun it in the summer. So like, I would see something once. And I could retain it. And I can act it out, and I can repeat it the next day, and I can do it. So I was had really good retention for things I was interested in. Mm-hmm. So it was like a, a sketch in a show, or a, a sitcom, or a conversation in a sitcom. So I was always crazily drawn to that. Um, I uh, uh, and so I saw things that I liked, but I think I just heard. I think I would just read plays and picture them and saw them in my head. Interesting. You know? mm. So it is, it's an intuitive, it's a more intuitive process. I was thinking, right. as you talked about film direction, you know, there's that, all those 
pieces of equipment between you and the, you, you have that kind of intermediate right. zone that you have to work with before you get to the, uh, the people on the other side. Right. There's none of that. It's all removed. It's just you, it's, you know, it, you are completely rawly sort of exposed uh, in a, in a, when you're a, a stage director, which seems to me you can't really rely on manuals quite the same, or, or sort of what you've seen before. You really have to evolve your own particular way of relating to other human beings. Yeah, so the rehearsal starts, if you have been given the assignment and not a cat by taking a class, and they say you're the director, so you're gonna pick this one act and you're gonna audition the school mm -hmm. actors and you're gonna make a rehearsal schedule and you're going to, it was the first day of rehearsal and I had to say something to them. <laughs> they had to figure out how to do that. Um, yeah, so that was very much, and, and it's just, it's an, you know, it's, you know, it's an empty room. It's like there's three people in there, and uh, we're going to do a play in here, and uh, we'll put the audience over there, and <laughs> you guys face that way when you talk. You know, so yeah. I mean, that was that was. Um, what were some of your early, your your earlier projects? I mean, the first ones that we saw in New York were, I think, they were Orson's Shadow mm -hmm. and Adding Machine. I was obsessed with Adding yeah. Machine. Yeah, I yeah, yeah, loved yeah. that show. I love it. It was just yeah. such a shock to the system. Too. Yeah. Oh my God, that was just incredible. Can you tell us a little bit, I mean, had you done much before that? Because obviously you were working in Chicago. Yes, I think what? I had, yes. I started directing and studying it in, in school. Mm -hmm. And in 1989, I raised some money and I got my friends together and we did a production of The Seagull in a storefront theater in Chicago. And you know, it was 22 year olds all playing, you know, <laughs> you know, Ranskaya, uh, not Ranskaya, just Jerry Archer, like Arkadina and, and uh, Soren, and you know. Um, uh, the most done play in America, right, by acting students yeah, who yeah. love Chekhov. So I did, yeah, so I did, I did that I, after I'd been studying, and then I, there are two routes that I've been able to track, which is, one is you align yourself with an institution or with some other artists, and you say, I will assist you. I want to be involved in this organization. I want to come in and, and, and you know mop up and, and work my way up to the table, and then you exist within an institution. Um, or what I did, which was sort of um, uh, much harder, <laughs> and, and it works <laughs> to self-producing, right. which is like I wanted to do a right. thing and I couldn't get anyone to. I couldn't. I didn't know how to ask anyone to let me, hmm. so I would just do it myself. And and so I did. You know, I I did that, and then. One of them was uh, very well received, and so it led to other jobs. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, just like so, so yeah. I mean, I started. I started very grassroots. I in Chicago. In Chicago, yeah. In storefront theater, self-producing things. I think the budget for Seagull was like six thousand mm -hmm. um, dollars, and uh, I also designed the costumes. And, and <laughs> Does that mean picking them off a rack? No, would no. You actually, I, drew oh, them. I would. I drew them. Oh my I, god! I, I pulled them from. Costume storage. I made things. I talked people into making Stop things. Stop it! <laughs> uh, who knew? I want to see a Hello Dolly with your costumes now, David. Oh, that's a lot of. That's a lot. Of, that's, that's there's too many costumes. There's too many goddamn costumes, and then now look the same. It's like, oh look, she's wearing that. Bring a hat, you know. Um. Uh, so and your 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 breakthrough in New York. I mean, I saw Adding Machine, and yeah. I, I I too that that was singular that show for me. Jason Lowith, who is the artistic director at Only Theater, he can understand, when I first met him and he became artistic director at Only Theater in Only Maryland, I was I was staring at him like he was a, you know, an, an idol, because I thought, my God, this guy worked 
on the adding machine. He was like, ah, I did it. It was fine. We had it. We had it. Yeah, it's done. You know, so I, he couldn't really understand what level that it affected. Me. Oh, that's yeah. I mean, I'm I'm glad. I that was one I had a real yeah. If I had I, I wanted it. Mm-hmm. I, I like my I had loved the play. I'd read it in college. Oh, Rice. And, yeah, beautiful, funny, really savage, really bleak, and funny and ugly, and um, all things that make a musical. Um, <laughs> uh, and. I heard about it. I was friends with Josh, I was friends with Jason, they told me about it, and I just wanted it. I wanted it. I said, I want I want to direct it. The so I just campaigned. Yeah, I just campaigned hard for it. I went to a workshop of it, um, and I told them everything that had to change about the workshop, and I drew I drew pictures huh. um, on my the, the program of what Daisy was going to look like when she was in the Elysian Fields, and, and things that ended up in the show, and, and um, the sort of grid of desks, and I just like I, I like knew what it was going to be. So did you often start with like a visual idea in your head of yeah, what the stage is going to look like? Yeah. Because the, yeah. our town felt very much the same, where you had this idea in your head of exactly where things would be. Our town was more improvised. Our ah. town was. I, I agreed to do this production at the Hypocrites, and I just said I was meeting with the artistic director, and I actually didn't want to do our town. I wanted to do Summer and Smoke. I had. Oh. Big case about why I was going to do summer and smoke instead, and the artistic director Sean Graney said, uh, "Okay, well we're going to do our time. So if you want to do it, do it. We're 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 done talking." And I just said out of my mouth, I said, "Okay, but uh, okay, I'll do our time. But can I play the stage manager?" And instead of saying no, he just said, "Oh yeah, good. Yeah, that's great." And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know why I wanted to play the stage manager. That was just a guess. And then you know we were given a space. We were in a space. We had to figure out how to make it work. We had to sort of lay out like. Um, I did picture alley seating, which is uh, oh. which is in the very original production in Chicago. It had two long sets of seats on both sides, and and it was open at the you know open at the ends. And um, so I knew that I knew that I wanted um, to really the kids to be able to run really. Far. I wanted to put mm-hmm. it as big space as possible so the kid could run um, back and forth to school and really run. Mm-hmm. And it just started evolving from there. And the things that the things that sort of emerged from that production, the Act Three stuff, just was kind of an extrapolation of like, okay, yeah. So, so that was I did picture the space. I mean, I, I pictured a, a footprint of the space and made it work in that way. And I had an impulse that I would play the stage manager. And I didn't know what that meant. I then retrofitted it with a reason, which has become the official reason. And I <laughs> may have meant this, but I didn't know that I meant this. Which was, um, I was balking at the idea of hiring an actor to pretend that he was running the evening mm. oh. in the way that the stage manager does. Because he would not have the actual power that the stage manager had. It. It's a little like the, the um, Dustin Hoffman, Sidney Pollack, Tootsie agent story, where he said, Debbie Coleman was playing the agent in the film, and Dustin Hoffman said, You have to do a Sidney Pollack. You have to play the agent. And he says, "Why?" He says, "Because if an actor says to me you'll never work again, that doesn't mean anything. But if you say I'll never work again, that's terrifying." Wow. And so I, I wanted some level of actual authority, and I thought it would be faking authority. So I uh, I thought that I would stand <laughs> in between the actors playing characters and the audience as you know the, as some kind of auteur of, of the evening. Um, so that's why I did it. Um, that's one of the reasons. That's how I retrofitted it. Yeah, I'm trying to get the meta I think here. So you, in your own head, 
needed, did you need that to justify your performance, or did you think that would add a layer of authenticity for the audience and the actors to uh, place you in that role? I think all of it, all, all of the above. I think that I, um, I'm being facetious when I just say I, I retrofitted. I mean, I, 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 you have an impulse, and then you go back and you go, why, why is this? And and if it if it if it's a if it was a good idea, it'll stick and it'll make itself known. It was just an impulse towards it, and then you you sort of find out why you had the impulse. I did feel like um, I, at various times I've taught directing, and I can only come up with um, a couple of things to teach people about directing. And one of them was I said like. The job is to stand in between the actors and the play while rehearsing and coax them towards each other and just navigate uh, this relationship and this union between them. And then the tricky part is, as they are about to meet the actors in the script, you're supposed to step out of the way. Right. But also, I think of this, I'm thinking as you're talking about our job, which is to go between the play and the audience, mm -hmm. the reader, yeah. Yeah. the reader. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, at what point are you also concerned? Are you the are you somehow the surrogate for the audience? How do you how do you transition? Do you have to think of yourself as outside the experience too to understand how people might receive the experience? Yes, yes, I I think so. Uh, I I you have to be conscious at some level. You know the actors don't necessarily because they're living in that reality. But you have to live outside that reality the same time you're in it, no? Because you have to think of how this is going to affect people when they sit down and watch this. Yes, and luckily the stage manager is um, providing context. Right. He's, in, he's stopping and starting right. things. He has the power to say right at the beginning, this is a play. It's called Our Town. There's going to be actors in it. Um, never, stage manager never says who, who, who they are. It, it felt like running a rehearsal. And... Um, and then I felt like I would be another animal that was not an actor pretending. I mean, we we ended up we ran for a long time in New York, and right. a lot of people went. I was the stage manager, and it was always difficult. To a man, they were all better actors than me. Um, you know, it was like Michael Shannon and Helen Hunt and 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 and, and Stephen Kunkin and, and Jason Butler Harner and Scott Parkinson, really really great actors. Um, Michael McKeon always said the the problem was they weren't the director of the show, and I was like, Wilder played the part a lot. He, he played the stage venture wow. like in Williamstown. Wow. Uh, he would do it whenever he had no idea. So that was one where that was meant to be. And that led to the idea that the lights would never go down. Mm. We were just going to, I was just going to walk into the theater and start talking to the audience. And half the time they just thought I was not sure. Do those ideas evolve or do you come in with a plan first day? Sometimes I come in with an utter plan. Can you give us an example of like, like band's visit? Is there a plan? Visit was always about the, the delicacy and the quiet and silence. The plan was always that it was going to be we were we were you know riffing on the film, which we which we loved, and we were never like trying to distance ourselves from the film. Mm -hmm. Like we, we, you know that's why we're here, and so trying to translate the film's kind of quiet, its spaciousness. Into, into the theater, which is you know the, the real outside mm -hmm. versus the fake outside. So I always knew it was going to be quiet. Mm -hmm. I always knew it was going to be conversational, and I always knew it was going to slowly drift. Um, it was going to float. Um, you know, the turntable is often going very slowly right. in the band. Oh, yeah. To just sort of let it's just things, the little dust mites 
swirling in the <laughs> desert, you know. Mm -hmm. um, um, so that was like impressionistically what you had in mind when you just read Inamar Moses' script and heard David's music? Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. And, uh, and uh, How do you communicate that to the other creative people involved? You say, is it, look, it's David Cromer, he'll, he'll solve it when he gets in the rehearsal room, but, or do you come in and say, so here's what I'm thinking. This is the yeah, yeah. It, 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 figuring out how to do exactly what you're saying is an ongoing struggle, and it is it, it is it is what keeps me up at night. How am I going to communicate this? Mm. And I don't get crazily better at it. So it's always. I mean, I, I I'm able to do it. I right. am clearly. I am confident that I'm able to eventually make my point. Right. Um. Uh. But it's it's like monkeys with typewriters. I have to. You know what I mean? I, I, right. As you've noticed, I just talk a lot until eventually we find some words we use. Uh, but uh, yeah, figuring out how to do that is is the work of it. Which is, um, uh, how do you give people room to create? How do you listen first? Um, I try to say, um, what did I say about the band visit? I said I think it's very important that it all takes place in one night. I think most of it takes place at night. People are different at night. Um, mm -hmm. uh, in a wide open space at night, it's mysterious. It's private. Um, there's a something sort of happens to your. Your chest expands somehow in wide open spaces at night. You know what I mean? You know, you, you're not, you're not like, uh, uh, um, you know, you, there's there's expansion of movement. You have room. If you're looking at something, you're looking at something that's 500 miles away and you're just glancing at it. Whereas in New York, we can't see past here. Right. Right. You know, so I, I talked about that. I talked about that it was um, quiet and conversational and that it uh, took place in the dark and that I wanted to float. Want to be like a little spark in the night and just float around. So I'd say things like that. Um, with Scott Pask, the set designer, he says that I said, think of a slow turntable. That I said that I went and I said, think of a slow turntable. Mm. Um, I've used slow turntables in the past, like super slow. I've seen them used really well. I, I think I, I mean, there are directors I steal from. Um, uh, one of them is a director named Dexter Bullard. Oh, I know did brilliant. Oh, I know did a Craig Wright's play, Grace, mm. at Northlight in Chicago, um, and that was one of the things he did. Was that the whole thing was on a was slowly turning over the course of things. So I, I love a slow turn table. It really casts a crazy spell on people. Mm -hmm. You know, you're like if it's moving super slowly. I did it a lot, and when the rain stops falling, I, I um, like in center, right? Yeah, when, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I have to say that the moment I can relive that moment a hundred times. There are just some theater moments, and then the song waiting. When the when it would, when when Andrew Polk would come around, and you realize you were getting at the same moment this portrait of the the, the of the dire dryness of this place at the same time that you realize real people lived here, yeah. and that movement that slow movement around just starting with him and a couple of other actors and that build that wonderful. Um, music swelling it's an amazing I don't understand the effect even that it has it's just so languid and at the same time compelling the thing that I thought was interesting about it and David Yadvik says he says I flatter myself he says I flatter myself that the whole set is based around a lyric one of the lyrics and Andy Polk's lyric at that point is sometimes it feels like we're moving in a circle around and around with the same scenery going and the audience like <laughs> yeah yeah and so like and it was like, and we literally like he. So as I did picture he would just be slowly kind of like oh. traveling around. <laughs> Am I moving in a circle? Right. Um, so 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 so. I don't know which came first, whether that was it or whether I just felt the slow turntable or whether they were all mm -hmm. um, 
it was a good thought and it just yielded a lot of other things. So I don't know what came first there, but but it, it is I would I would say uh, possibly the initiating incident is that there. That's so interesting because the other thing I would say is if you didn't understand what you were watching in that scene, I don't think you would get the musical. I think there's something about the active idea of waiting yeah. that is powerful to, to me. I'm not sure everyone is patient when they go to the theater. And that's why, you know, I would hear from people who wanted it to like pick up speed yeah, yeah, or whatever yeah, yeah, it was yeah. that they were not keying in on. Then I thought, all right, we're not on the same in a side weird here. way, I think that's what happened when if you don't mind, I would love to talk about Brighton Beach memoir. Okay. That may not be a good memory. So we no. don't I, I sat on the um, rehearsals but, of that. But I felt yeah. like that was another case of expectations, certain expectations of placed on the author yeah. and and the material that we should say. Yeah, let's, should let's say, talk set about that up. That Brighton Beach was supposed to be both Brighton Beach memoirs and Broadway bound right. as a as a dual a dual experience. Uh, Neil Simon. Neil Simon was coming back. This is about six years, seven no, years ago. No, like ten, ten years. Oh my God. Yeah, I was. It was the first job I got uh, directly. And Santino Fontana and Noah Robbins um, were the and brothers. Laurie Metcalf. And Laurie Metcalf. Metcalf yeah. Jessica Hecht. And and Alexander Sosha and Gracie Lawrence were the were the Alexander Sosha was in them. She was the princess and had over heels. Fantastic. Right, right. And they never got to the second play. The first one closed very. But I think this is a case as you were saying of like the it's really I mean I think as a director you must be very aware or maybe you're not maybe you try to block it out of the expectations that are put on the material because when you're dealing with Neil Simon there's definitely a certain. Image. Yes. Maybe yeah. it's receding at this point. I, I don't know, but it's definitely. It's funny. It's. But I would say you, know, you look at say the film of the Odd Couple, mm -hmm. which is funny, but it is played by these master character actors. It's shot with an enormous amount of sort of, for want of a better word, gritty realism. They are very mm -hmm. sweaty. Right. They are very unattractive. They are, you know what I mean. It is. Right. Like, it is not a. It is not a glamorized right. thing. They're sort of, you know, schlubby New York. They're schlubby. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're just these sort of like flabby, schlubby guys. Right. Um, there's nothing glamorous about it, and it's and it's um, hilarious, but it's sort of grounded in, you know, and Mike Nichols directed the original production, and right, right. And our town had opened. There had been a feature on me in the New York Times that I believe Chris Jones. Chicago had sort of, I think, prodded um, Charles Isherwood yeah. to write. I think I might have gotten the MacArthur right around then too, and um, so I was sort of a uh, property. So I was called by Manny Eisenberg, and they all came to see um, our, right town. Beach, our town in previews, and and I was tasked with treating Brighton Beach memoirs. Uh, as what what it was, which is an actually important American play, a a, a very about the depression. Uh -huh. um, uh, if you uh, now, <laughs> with my unerring <laughs> my unerring instincts about what is commercial, I I read it. I said, you know, this is about economic anxiety, um, and every okay, every conversation that plays about job, yeah, money, a few dollars. He, uh, uh, Stanley lost a job. Dad might lose his job. Dad's working himself to death. Dad lost one of his jobs. Uh, uh, Stanley lost his job. There's no money. 
they can't afford uh, they can't afford to live. But that's why the plan's so good. I mean, that's why right. it's and it's a big argument with the sister. You know, it's this uh-huh. right. huge. The whole second act is this huge blowout with the sisters. Now, right, Big Memoirs ran on Broadway, the original production for four years, and what people remember is that it was hilarious, mm-hmm. and it, this this ongoing stream of, of Matthew Broderick's and Matthew Broderick replacements and John, all of whom became right, famous. Right. Yeah, John Silver. So it was and, fun. They remembered the laugh right and the, the kid's adorable. <laughs> I, I just didn't actually read it that way. I was tasked with that. That's what the and I said I, I want to you know, I said it is funny. It's automatically funny. It's very funny. People love it. It's beautiful. It is very kind hearted. It's a very kind hearted play. Um, I think it's interesting about it, it when choosing to compan- uh, pair it with Robert Bound, which is the same characters mm-hmm. seven, eight, ten years later, mm-hmm. something like that. Right in Beach Memoirs, you are virtually assured by the contract that that play makes with the audience mm-hmm. that the Jeromes will be all right and mm-hmm. that the parents' marriage will endure and that for all of their yelling and screaming and fetching, they were going to make it, they were going to be okay. And then in Broadway Bound, the parents' marriage falls apart. Mm-hmm. So, like, Neil wrote the contract mm-hmm. that he made with the audience in Brighton Beach Memoirs uh, in the second place. So, so I was able to say, we're pairing these two. This starts in this kind place. Wait, what, was that your idea? To, to pair no, 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 no. It was Manny's idea. Okay, I, okay. Was, I don't, I believe it was Manny's idea. I yeah, think it was, that was the whole notion. Right? Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, they couldn't do. Um, they couldn't do um, Biloxi Blues because they had a different set. Oh, right, right. Um, okay. I, and we were fascinated by the idea that we could say, and Broadway Bound, I don't know if you've read Broadway Bound lately, Broadway Bound is is almost an archipelago play. Mm. There's a bunch of jokes in it. And it is my opinion that Neil ha- had a true greatness as a dramatist, and he uh, did not always trust it. And he did not always trust it didn't have to be funny. Mm-hmm. And so it would it, the commercial considerations were he would he would mm-hmm. make it funnier. Um, um, but right, very spiky, he was a very challenging person. And uh, and that those are challenging those are challenging plays. And he wrote challenging plays. So I think uh, right Robert Brown's a little jokey, but it's devastating. It's devastating. And there's this long scene where the parents' marriage falls apart. That is as good as anything. It's as good as, it's not what they're going to It's Willie and Linda, you know. Someone has um, got to really reconsider. I mean, I do think what you're describing is really making the case, you know, we, I feel right. like American theater has sort of like stepped back from Neil Simon mm-hmm. to some degree, at right. least in New York, and said, you know, not, no, maybe not. And and, and, it, and it, he becomes a default choice around the country for a pop, you know, like what's yeah. considered a popular show for the older audience. Right. But I think what you're describing is really something that maybe, maybe you were just too, it was too close, maybe uh, to, to, you know, at the time when people thought of him that way. And maybe this is the time when really should, we should be reconsidering these plays. I, I, I would also say, too, that the, the, the failure of Bright Beach Memoirs was not critical. Right. Um, it was actually very well received and we were, it was very difficult to go into dress rehearsals and not get like monster buffalo laughs. That upset Neil profoundly. He was, mm-hmm. he was, that was a day he stopped speaking to me for many weeks. Wow. Um, uh, but uh, we, I kept, I kept telling everyone, this is the show we're doing. I'm not going to run away from any judge. We cast beautifully fun. Laurie Metcalf was in oh, it. My God. Right. Laurie Metcalf, who could, Break your heart and make you guffaw with laughter 
you know, I felt so lucky to have seen it. I really, I really. And I remember something about there was a reliance on the ads in the New York Times. There was a sense that if that's all you needed, yeah, and right. it wasn't what you needed. There, you needed a bigger campaign. There was no. I did not know anything about um, anything about Broadway. I have I read the uh, read the weekly grosses several you know maybe mm-hmm. once once or twice sure. More when more if I have a show. I've never seen grosses as low as right. The previous report of my words grossed one hundred and twenty seven thousand dollars. I remember that. That is and I didn't know it's like, oh that seems like a lot of money to me. <laughs> right. $127,000. That's okay. The right. houses were mostly full. They were on paper. The tickets were, you know, oh, they were right. on paper. Um uh it was a marketing. No one knew about it. By the time it closed, what what the resounding response was nobody knew about it. Um so it it was a it was a I think and I think, I, I feel like if this opened like tomorrow like people will be like clamoring for tickets. Well, it's also I mean, it was on the precipice of the change in 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 the idea of who do you have a name in it? You know, plays suddenly play, revivals of plays had to have stars, yeah. and right. this didn't. This Neil Simon was the star, and yeah. playwrights weren't stars anymore. So it was an interesting sort of problem. I wrote a very positive review of. Play. Um, I think that we. I, I think we we would have made a case for it if people had seen the second play because the first play was really only we were presenting it as the first half of a, mm-hmm. of a, of a right. full play, which is we were going to watch this kid. We're going to watch this kid have right a, 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 a home life that was nurturing and then a home life that fell apart. Right. Um, it was incredibly ambitious, and and, and the, that's what I mean too. Like I think people were not identifying. I think maybe a younger generation was like, oh, Neil Simon, that old, you know, establishment, like, creaky yeah. boulevard. You know, one of the things that I'm interested in is, like, in, in, in Europe, uh, there's very much a sense that the, the theater director runs the show and right. very often takes precedence even over the writer. Mm-hmm. Like, I... I you know. Right, exactly. Like a play by who? We don't know. It's a show by Ivo Van Hove, but that's actually in France. You don't even have the writer on the poster. It's, you know, the new Ivo Van Hove show. It's not the new playwrights, anyway. Not here. Not here. In the US, it's very much a writer's scene, I would say. Where do you think you fall on this? Or is there, I'm not sure how to put this exactly, but where, because I think of you really very much as a director's director, yet not in the continental tradition. I try very hard to uh, adhere to what the text is telling you, and not just only what it's telling you and uh, throw up my hands because that's what it's telling me, but like what is it telling me? Uh-huh. What is it saying it wants to be? And uh, throwing myself at it and committing to it. it. It's sometimes rough with playwrights, it's sometimes living playwrights, it's sometimes rough, it's sometimes easy, it's sometimes wonderful, but I'm believe that I'm saying, this is what you wrote. Mm-hmm. This here's what you wrote. If you want this to be cuter or more fun, you know, I, I'll say about writing the Beach Memoirs, I would say, um, I was told at one point by a certain producer, you gotta lighten it up, you gotta lighten it up. I said, um, <laughs> uh, every conversation is about how they're almost bankrupt and that they're one, one, one thing away from the poorhouse. Uh, one of the biggest moments in Act One is when the kids making fun of food dinner, and it turns out that they can't afford anything else. And then uh, at intermission, the father has a heart attack and almost dies. 
this. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so yep, I'm yep, just, yep. Uh, yeah, right. I just, I realized, I was like, this is what, this is what, this is. And, and the whole right. second act right. uh, is, is the sisters arguing, is the, the relationship between Blanche and, and Blanche and Kate. Right. Um, You're not projecting anything no. onto, it's all in the yeah. text. Yeah, right. so I, I, I have the luxury of, they hired me to do shows like that. They don't, they don't hire me to and make money. <laughs> Sometimes they do. Um, uh, and just, just but only we, a very little just bit we, 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 we want to like, you know, uh, let people know what you're doing right now, which would obviously right now you're in the midst of the final rehearsing for the band's visit to go on the road. Yeah, yeah. National uh, Tour of the Band. The National Tour to... starts in Providence and then moves to D.C. Yes. And you've just directed Next to Normal in Chicago. So... You know, there's an intro. That's a to me. That's a Cromer. You know, it's like okay, I want to see what Cromer does with Next to Normal, which is a, a favorite of mine. I love it too. I love yeah. that show. Yeah. Uh, what did you find? How did you find that experience? Uh, of directing Next to Normal. Wonderful. To the detriment of the band's visit, frankly, because I was so, <laughs> uh, I was so on. Mm. We were we were just all communicating very well, mm. and we were functioning very uh, very successfully uh, while we were working on that. And I came here, and I can't form a sentence. I think I may have left. I think I may have left the good stuff on the field. No, it just seems uh, like that, that, and because I mean, there's such a and that piece which they worked on for ten years. There's such a depth of understanding of the material by the by Tom Kidd and Brian Yorkie, I think. Mm that uh, it would seem to me something that you would latch on to in terms of trying to, to, to mine this material for as much as you possibly could. I, I love the, the Broadway production. I saw it three times. I paid full price every time, and I, I, I loved it. I saw I saw um, her twice. I saw her Maisie, and Alice, uh, I saw Alice twice. Really? I saw it with uh, Derek Robert and with a friend of James when he came back. I did, too. Yeah. So I, I was a next to normal head. That, that I couldn't do. I couldn't direct that production that way. I just, I was a little more focused on sort of the, the finer points of um, how the illness kept evolving past everyone's goodwill and ability mm. to fix it. Mm. And like it just kept like everyone was doing everything in their right. to solve it. Right. Um, right. And I think the Broadway production, dazzling and thrilling, um, and very successful because they went. We're just going to blow it out. It's going to be right. It's going to be. It's going to be. Uh, emotion, and I wanted to take all the fun. <laughs> 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 but that's okay. Um, it doesn't have to be fun. Yeah. I, so we, I just was really focused on the progression of events, and it was like we were in a smaller space. It got better as it got less fun. When they had the number in the first act, the breakdown in the uh, Costco, yeah. yeah, the Costco, which I saw in New York, or came to Washington, they rejiggered it. But that was a mistake. And every time they went for that kind of outsized theatricality, yeah. I felt like they were really robbing the piece. So I want to, I mean, I thought that, it, that Michael Greif did a great job. Yeah, that. brilliant. But I would love to see your production. I, 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 and I hear from Terry that it was a great production. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's doing really well. I mean, it did really well for the theater. I've worked at that theater a lot. And yeah, I really, I really like it. I really like it. That's not. Are um, they talking about bringing it east at any time? No. I think if, if, Someone wants to revive it. Commercial producers want to revive next to normal. They would have some other uh, vision for it. You know, I don't feel the need to force my production of next to normal. Anymore. That's great, <laughs> and, and that's great. I, mean, yeah. I don't see. I mean, this I, New York is not a deal on at all. No, but, but I just that, want to that, see it. Right. Well, yes. Selfishly, yes. <laughs> everything doesn't have to come to New York, and everything doesn't have to go. To right. I know. It's very hard to get out of that mindset. It's very difficult to get out of that mindset when something isn't going to transfer. When something isn't successful, but you just have to. 
but it's also good that you go back to Chicago and direct. I mean, that's important. It's important for other cities to have first-ranked directors doing stuff. I mean, that's just it's important. It's much it's, it's much healthier for theater in this country yeah. to not be all their eggs in one expensive basket. Indeed. Well, listen, David. <laughs> thank you thank for you your so time. Much. So we much. look forward. I look forward to seeing the bands visit for the seventeenth time. Oh, I'm going to see it at the uh, Kennedy Center next month. So I'm excited about them seeing Sasson again play. And it's uh, Chilina Kennedy, right? Chilina Kennedy. Oh, yeah. I saw it's Chilina. It's Chilina. Chilina. Yeah. Chilina. Fun, yeah. Fun fact: It's Chilina like champagne. Yeah. Chilina like champagne. I will totally remember yeah. that. Well, thanks a bunch. Thanks so much. Yes, this was really fun. Thank you. Wow. Okay. I I gotta say, but I could. <laughs> like listen to David Kroger for like hours yeah. on end. No, no, no. The, the the inside the mind of a director, you know, that's what I was feeling that I was getting. Which it's, is so it's really cool. hard because very often we don't really understand like how things happen on stage the way they do. Right. Like I mean for me it's like a huge mystery. It's like why did you decide yeah, you know, as you were saying, like why did you decide to just have them face that way? Yeah. Or or not? Yeah. I mean, why did you place them in that why did you have that I don't know. It's yeah. kind of yeah, yeah. and finding out the, the, his visual sense, the idea he draws mm -hmm. things. You know, I mean, I had no sense of that before he sat down, or that he actually had this idea about the stage manager so interestingly sort of composed in his head, how it was going to justify it. It's just really interesting. It's stuff. it's great. Yeah. Well, actually, you know what? Uh, when we, do, I mean, we're going to do our, our picks of the podcast now, and mine actually is directed by a, a rising director. He's kind of a bit more than rising at this point, because I think it's, didn't he get a Tony for Fun Home? You know, I'm talking Sam about Gold. Sam Gold. He did. Uh, Sam Gold directed uh, a new musical adaptation of The Secret Life of Bees uh, at the Atlantic. Hmm. Uh, it's based on a best-selling novel by uh, Sue Mon Kidd, and there's actually also a movie adaptation, which haven't seen. Um, and this one has a, quite the pedigree, so it's Sam Gold directed. Uh, the book adaptation is by Lynn Nottage. Uh, it has an interesting uh, sideline in musical books. Uh, she's kind of working on several of them at the same time. Uh, the lyrics are by Susan Birkenhead and the music is by Duncan Sheik and that is his best score. Really? It is his best score since Spring Awakening. Wow. By, like, easy. Um, like, there's issues, I have issues with the show, but I think they have to do with the story itself, which is mm. a little, maybe a little sappy and uh -huh. magical for my precious. taste. A little precious at times, but it is really well staged and active, and I, honestly, I really didn't think that would be in my bag. On paper, sure. I was I get not, worried when I feel like the sugar content rises. The sugar content, yeah. but, but the kind of, it's under control. Okay, It's I under control. You. Uh, I think the the emotions are earned, which is not always the case, especially with musicals, I think. And there's some really terrific performances in the cast. Uh, Isaac Davis is wonderful. Ella Chance is also very good, as is her want. Also, what was surprising to me also a little bit is that I felt the show is completely ready for a transfer. Wow. It's, it's that. I mean, you may or may not like it, but I feel like it is... Wow. Completely ready. It wow. could move well, like a, tomorrow. A really polished uh, creative team, that's for sure. It is. Um, yeah. No, I was. You know, it's one of those things where I think something we've talked about a bit on the podcast before is when you go to a show with expectations, mm -hmm. and I really did not expect to like this, just because, as I said, on the kind of 
magical realist material. It's not necessarily my thing, mm -hmm. but I think it works in its own universe. Mm -hmm. It's a very coherent show, which is not easy to pull off, actually, right. I think, coherence. Right. So right. Um, I think it could really find an audience. Wow. Okay. Now I'm going to pick a show <laughs> that I think needed a director, um, <laughs> and it's not exactly a, a performance of the sort that we're uh, we usually talk about. I'm talking about the Tony Awards. Oh God! That yeah. uh, I watched, and you know, the Tony Awards are really only as good as the shows that are being celebrated. And this year was kind of, I thought, lackluster. It was kind of dull. I thought James Corden as host was too frenetic, too eager to please. It becomes kind of oleaginous at some point when it's so overwrought. I thought the numbers felt so overthought too that they had the impression, they proved the impression they were funny, but they really weren't that funny. Uh, the one, one moment I actually did think was funny was Audrey McDonald and Laura Linney squaring off at the audience with each other. That was actually good. And you know what else I thought? The, the shows that they were celebrating felt fairly small in stature, minor, and they're in this 7,000-seat arena that's vast. And the scale of the place, the grandeur of that space, felt out of proportion to what they were trying to convey throughout the show, which is sort of the intimacy of the, of the musical today. Even the moments when the four playwrights were trotted out <laughs> in, like as if it was like a, a school assembly, oh, and they each had to like, you know, announce their, their, their favorite book or something, and each one had to deliver like a version of an acceptance speech for something they hadn't really won yet. Yeah, it was a it very was... strange uh, 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 juxtaposition. So yeah. the whole thing felt unpleasant to me in a weird way. Uh, I was, and of course, uh, Elizabeth and I uh, share a, a, a distaste, you could say, for Hades Town. We don't really think it's this uh, this major achievement, no. although I think it's a very pretty show in many ways. But it it felt to me even last night like a music video turned into a musical, and so for those reasons, I thought. I, I don't think they did um, any really um, service to the theater world. The proof of the pudding was that the uh, the ratings that they announced they were abysmal. They were uh, like ten percent down from last year, and they went, last year wasn't even that magical a year. And so the whole thing felt almost like I was watching them drown in irrelevancy. You know, a the, bowl the, of irrelevance. But the problem is that it's a self-inflicted wound, partly it is, because it comes from every, and it's like almost every year, it comes from such a place of insecurity. And like every yeah. year, they feel right. like they have to explain yes. why theater is a good thing. Right. It's like, you are, you, you, do you guys realize that you sound pathetic? And right, when they start them? by saying, the great thing about theater is you get to see it live. I mean, that was the like, first song. The song was about that, but you know, every you, year you don't have to go like, sit on your ass in your living Every, in your, year, in your every living single room. year, it's like theater is there, it exists, and it's fun, and it's cool. Like, it's it's such, you know, it's an art form with such a chip on its shoulder. It is so, this weird mix of superiority, because right. nobody can, make, can feel as superior as a theater artiste, mm -hmm. let me tell you. This weird mix of superiority and this craven need to be accepted, it is so 
weird. It is weird. Like there's a complete lack of confidence yeah. in what you're doing. I will say though, I will say that the moment that Ali Stroker oh. won uh, uh, for uh, awesome for Oklahoma was a marvelous moment. She's in a wheelchair. For those of you who don't know. And the wonderful thing was we had just seen her perform I Can't Say No from Oklahoma, from the wheelchair, and you got a demonstration of her power and her sort of her joy and exuberance in that role. So all that felt earned when she won the award. And also, of course, just the glory of saying you can have that kind of pizzazz, you don't have to be conventionally cast right. to find that. Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful moment in American theater, I think a kind of landmark moment. It didn't right. feel... But patronizing, it felt real, and that was really great. Well, that's why it worked exactly because it's not. It, it comes from a position of strength and, and confidence, as opposed to those apologetic numbers that are self-justifying. You know, if you have to self-justify your existence all the time, like you don't believe in yourself, just right. like put on a good number. Right. Just, just do it. Just right. put on a good number, and that's yeah. it. You don't have to justify your existence. Yeah, well, look, oh, it's just so sad. I know. Maybe I, I don't know what the answer is, though. Maybe I think I'm just maybe award show allergic at this point. I don't know that I can. I don't know what you could do that would make it. And also, I've, I've got to say, I was really cheesed off by the way that that parody of Michael in the bathroom, a number for Be More Chill, that they recycled uh, without crediting it as a kind of joke number about yeah, James, James Gordon and. Sings a version of Michael in the Bathroom, which is the best song from Be More, Be Chill. More Chill, without letting the television audience know there was a show called Be More Chill. I don't think right. it was mentioned on the show. No, it was not. And in fact, Joy Conist wrote the score, which was nominated, right. whether you like it or not. It right. was nominated yeah, for best score. Not mention it then, yeah. But but it's crazy that he didn't know they were going to do that. I know, I know. That's I know. nuts. Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. I find it like they could have. Found a way to mention it. It's yeah. like you know, as David Yesley. Of course, they could have. They could have said right afterwards. They could have said, and that, of course, was you know, a, yeah. a version of the song that Joe Iconis wrote. I mean, David Yesley pointed out very justly in a tweet. He said, you know, this is a commercial endeavor. They are the whole point of the Tonys is as a gigantic commercial. Yes, it's sell tickets for Broadway right. to sell tickets. That right. is the whole point. Right. Well. We're not selling you tickets to anything. You can just tune us in on your podcast dial. So free. So free. So free. <laughs> so so outrageous. Uh, and with that, I'll say I'm Peter Marks. And I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. You've been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine. Our producer, in the driver's seat for the very first time. Well, so round of applause is Alex Barrett. The first, the first time with us. Yes, but that's what matters. That's it's right. us. Uh, Alex, your life is starting today. Can't wait. There's nothing, nothing was happening before that. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. Kind of like David Cromer. We're going to put him through hell. We're going to put him through hell. He's going to go into Hades Town. <laughs> you know, we're going to send him and no one's going to take pull him back out of it. Oh my god. This is this is the worst thing you could wish on someone. Stop! <laughs> oh my god. Anyway, you can follow us on Twitter at three on the aisle and write to us at three on the aisle at gmail.com and that is spelled out. And actually we'd love overdue for a mailbag. We're gonna do that probably in our next show. So please let us know what other topics you'd like to hear on future episodes. And don't forget to leave a review or rating on iTunes or Google Play. We miss you, Terry. He'll be back, back very soon. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll be with you again very soon on the aisle.